have you used some of these behavioral techniques on your kid and your husband? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Could you share one? <laughs> well, one of my favorite examples, you know, when you're asking the kids, so if you say to a kid like, no, it's time to go, we're get ready. We're leaving now. Now's the time. Mm, they mm. will rebel against that. <laughs> that doesn't go yes. over very well. Yeah. If instead, so we always will say, do you want to leave now or in five minutes? And oh, wow. Say, yeah. That's genius. <laughs> Hi, I'm Claudia, and you're listening to The Brain and Brand Show, where you'll hear science and inspiration from guests like neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart. Hey, guys, welcome to The Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice. What a delight it is to bring you today's conversation about simple ways to apply behavioral science. My guest today is Melina Palmer, the author of What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You. Before we dive in, I want to thank all of you who have left comments and rated the show. And a big thanks in advance to those of you who will rate the show and comment after you listen today. In this conversation, you'll hear the absolute passion and clarity from which Melina speaks about the simple application of behavioral science. She shares practical ways she uses the insights from her book on everyone from her daughter to her corporate clients. I'll share Melina's website in the show notes because you're going to want to book her for talks and advisory work and maybe even book her virtual behavioral science course, which is in partnership with Texas A&M University. As always, you can email me bookings at timothymaurice.com or tmw at timothymaurice.com to engage. Meet Melina Palmer. Melina Palmer. Enjoy. Welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. There are 195 countries in the world, and your podcast is listened to in 90% of them. Now, I'm imagining the few countries where you don't have listeners may not even have internet. <laughs> why do you think, <laughs> why do you think uh, the Brainy Business Podcast is so popular? I would say that... You know, I found through this process of podcasting that my superpower, as they like to say, is being able to take really complex, weighty, academic research and translate, like boil down to say, hey, this is what you need to know. This is why. And here's a way you can go start applying this right away, like taking academic language and making it so it's usable and fun to listen to and not like a lecture is uh, what I would guess is uh, why people love and share the brainy business. Well, you know, it's funny because I have one foot in academia and one foot in the real world. And I have to say, that's what I appreciate about your work and why I wanted to have a conversation with you. In fact, I think that's why your book is probably so successful as well, is that you remove the jargon and you just like the big sister. It's like hanging out with the big sister reading your book. Thinking about your personal journey into this world, if you think about some of the leaders that you and I both look up to, like Danny, Daniel Kahneman, you know, if you look at his time in the military and how it influenced his interest in behavioral economics and his work kind of grew and became really big from that space. And my own sort of experience with Nelson Mandela, watching him use persuasion principles to raise money for his foundation. What were some of the things that moved you? If Kahneman was his military experience, it's mine is mine. What's yours? 
You know, I would say, so my undergrad is in uh, marketing. And so I worked in brand strategy and things like that for a long time, which obviously kindred spirits, as we've (laughs) sort of noted here. And I think just, I've always been a pretty curious person and been okay being the, what they call devil's advocate right in the room. I, someone used another term at one point and I forget what it was, but it was something that sounded better than that. But so I'll, I'll come up with something, (laughs) (laughs) uh, that's better, but you know, not being afraid to be the like ambitious woman in the room and saying like, I'm going to do this amazing thing. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to try this and kind of bucking the norms and looking at others and kind of saying, why do they do that? Who I wonder what that's about. Uh, I've always just loved to observe the world around me and wonder why things are the way that they are. And so when I found that this was something I could just do for work, like, well, that's great. <laughs> that's yeah, perfect. Yeah, I can do this all yeah. day. <laughs> where, where did you grow up, by the way? In Washington State. So I'm originally from Alaska. Uh, my family. Okay. Yeah, I know. So you can see me. I know there's maybe going to be some video out somewhere. I don't sure, necessarily sure, sure. look Alaskan native. I have pretty pale skin, but... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, actually on my mom's side, most of the family lives on the reservation in Alaska. So, um, oh, really? yeah, I, Fascinating. Yep. yeah, so I'm, but okay. I mostly grew up in Washington. I was actually going to ask you about the simplicity and whether or not, you know, removing the jargon, because people do get caught up in sounding fancy and sounding like I'm a behavioral economic, you know, but what I'm interested in is, do you think, because you make it so simple, do you really think this should be taught at grade school? Do you think kids should learn this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, really, it's all about how all of our brains make decisions all the time. I I know it's, I, I talk often that one of my very favorite books is called A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger. And in yeah. it uh, was introduced to the Right Question Institute and the work that they do with their question formulation technique, which is how I do my question storming based on that. And they work in school uh, from, you know, preschool age all the way up through, you know, postgraduate level stuff, teaching people to ask good questions. And we as children, like we're natural questioners. And for anyone who doesn't believe me, I've got a five-year-old I can send to your house for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, you know, that like, why, why that? Why, why, Mm -hmm. what's that about? And we kind of get that, um, taught out of us either from, you know, teachers or uh, parents that just can't answer one more question and say, just because, right. Stop asking questions. And when we're growing up, we are taught at least, you know, in the United States, I know for sure, but we are really taught that the, there's a right answer. If you, um, if you question the question, you're, uh, you know, being aggressive or you're, you know, just not a good student. And you're looking for that right answer every single time. And so many problems, there's never just one way of looking at it. And if we're taught that that is the way to approach all of our problems, then, you know, you end up with so much more time spent on finding the right answer to the wrong question. And so what I like to work with um, clients on and with my kids, you know, all the way through is, 
understanding that it's great to ask questions and to learn as much as you can make sure you're solving the right problem before you jump into solution mode. Share a fun story where you've used, um, I won't mention your husband's name if you don't want me to, but you mentioned oh, no, you're your fine. book and your acknowledgement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So your husband, Aaron, you mentioned in your acknowledgement with some other wonderful people you've worked with or collaborated with or have inspired you. Uh, have you used some of these behavioral techniques on your kid and your husband? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Could you share one? So, so funny? Because I think yeah. we all do this. We don't do it intentionally, right? But we're all nudging. We all, you know, using it and reframing, using choice architecture. We always using this stuff on our, and this is what I love about the behavioral sciences in, in general is that it can be applied across society, right? Right. So how yeah. do you use it? How do you use it? <laughs> well, one of my favorite examples, and, and my husband, he knows all the um, stuff of my research and we, he uses the terms with me. I use them with him and we use stuff with the kids for sure. One of my favorite oh, things wow. that he's always done is, you know, when you're asking the kids, so if you say to a kid, like, no, it's time to go, we're get ready. We're leaving now. Now's the time mm, they mm. will rebel against that. <laughs> that doesn't go yes. over very well. Yeah. If instead, so we always will say, do you want to leave now or in five minutes? And oh, wow. say, yeah. that's genius. <laughs> And sometimes they say now, but more often than not, you know, five minutes is great. And so instead of saying like, we're leaving in five minutes, be ready. But, you know, now are five minutes and then they get to have some, you know, power in that space. So that is a really easy one. Another example I give a lot is that my uh, daughter doesn't always like to have her hair up and for a long time really hated the idea of it. And, you know, even bring the brush and like, no, 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 I don't want that. I don't want, and she calls, says she doesn't want piggies was like no piggies. Mm, I don't want mm, that. Mm, and, mm. uh, but if I would say, do you want an Elsa braid? Absolutely. Like, wow. <laughs> so, or, or asking which bow, which bow do you want in your hair today? Which color hair tie do you want? The question's not, can I do your hair? It's which pretty thing do you want? And then she's magically on board with the process. Amazing. I mean, we know this stuff works and, you know, sometimes I'm even surprised. Do you have a great story of when you were surprised that when you applied it at an organization and it was just like, whoa. Hmm. I always love to see how things come out and I love, you know, listeners will reach out to me all the time and say, oh my gosh, I tried this and it totally worked. And they're so excited, which is wonderful. One of my favorite stories because it's such a simple thing and it's rooted in this jargon, which every industry has tons and tons of jargon. Uh, Before I started doing consulting full-time, I ran a marketing department for a financial institution and financial institutions really love their jargon is rates. You know, rates mm, are a thing, mm, APR, mm. APY, this percentage fee. And you're, they're looking at, and because we're a herding species, right? You see, well, everyone else is talking rates. I have to talk rates too. It must work. They have more people than us. So we just need to do that conversation better. But that isn't <laughs> the best way to communicate. So I was working with a financial institution that was launching a new rewards checking account. They were super excited about and they just wanted me to help with this market messaging and what they were planning to put on you know, all their billboards, all their messaging, everything out in the world was going to say, earn 1.26% APY on up to $25,000 in balances. Mm. Ta-da! <laughs> that's, the, <laughs> that's the billboard, right? To which mm. I said, please 
please don't let's not do this. Um, and got them instead to reframe it. So reframing, no matter how, even if you get rates and you know, 1.26% off 25,000 doesn't, our brain doesn't compute that very well or quickly. You'd have to sit and, you know, get out your calculator. And when you're driving on the freeway past a billboard, that's not going to register very much. So instead I had them change it to say, did your checking account pay you $315 last year? To which you can very quickly say yes, or more likely no. No. And who the heck is talking about that? Like, I want to learn more. So taking it into those small steps, asking a good question, makes someone curious to want to see who's talking about this. Uh, that financial institution enjoyed a 60% lift in month over month account openings. So amazing. Yeah. With the same buy they were planning to do already and just a slight shift in the way you talk about it can make all the difference. So when do you work more with marketing departments or do you sometimes you know, work within HR, talent, or or which is your favorite department to work? Oh, so favorite is a different thing, I think, for any purpose. <laughs> but um, like, I, I really love to work in all areas. And um, kind of like we were saying, I'm looking at anything out in the world and get excited and curious about it. So doing, you know, things, strategy at a you know, C-suite level to talk about everything we're working on or within a department. Um, I I love all of it. I teach a class on internal communication and change management uh, because my background is in marketing and brand strategy. I think that I naturally see much more there and have a lot of connections in that space. And so the podcast and other, you know, anything I'm talking about, the examples that come up, you know, are, are more rooted in a lot of that. In my opinion, I think branding is something that should be above marketing. You know, branding to me is central to any business and should be that, you know, touchstone for the entire organization, regardless of size. So I think that brand strategy is further back and not just in marketing. Um, but for a lot of companies that falls in the marketing department. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, the, the moment that the behavioral space is in now seems that the community has put on a moral hat that we need to figure out a way to get people vaccinated. We need to figure out a way to deal with, you know, inclusion and so forth. Do you think because we're doing that, that we aren't partnering enough with the Elon Musk and you know, looking at innovation because we seem so almost reactive versus ahead of the curve. What are your thoughts about that? You know, I think that the great thing about behavioral sciences and behavioral economics is there are endless areas where it can be applied and do good things. And I know that there are lots of academic programs and the work so far has been very much in public policy because of the backgrounds of, you know, Sunstein and Thaler and Kahneman and those who are yes. in the space already. And so because those are the examples that exist and the great work that's been done in the UK and around what you see is mostly public facing. And so 
I guess we've got availability bias on some of this too. So because private work is done with companies who have extensive NDAs, like I have multiple, you know, global corporations I've done work with that I can't say anywhere. And I know what the research we did and things that have happened, but you don't get to talk about it. And there's a lot of that that exists in other areas around the world with, you know, agencies that are doing really cool work um, and companies that have nudge units or behavioral officers and things like that, that are doing cool stuff that they just don't talk to anybody about for corporate purposes. So (laughs) I think there's more happening than is publicly seen is what I found in conversations and things that I've had in my own work. Um, I wish there would be though an avenue to have more of that information shared in a better way. That's what I would like to see. uh, Let's transition to your wonderful book, which I absolutely love. You know, what your customer wants and can't tell you. What percentage of what a customer wants that they can tell you versus what they can't tell you? If you had to put a number on it, what would you say the percentage is? Well, um, I would say that because this is rooted in the subconscious running the show and For those who are listening and that have a background in behavioral economics, I always like to put out the caveat there that, yes, in behavioral science, we talk about system one and system two using terms from Kahneman. I find that the the concept of system one and system two is a system two process, and it makes it very difficult for people to get a concept (laughs) if they're going, wait, which one is that again? So I just say conscious and subconscious for the, for the purists of the world. I know that that's like, they don't, the academic side gets um, irked maybe sometimes with that, but I accept it. I feel good about it. So that's why I, I use that terminology. So, you know, the subconscious is running the show. Some studies and claims I've seen put it as high as 99.999% of anything anyone is doing at any given time is by that subconscious elephant, as we like to talk about it. Yeah. And, you know, lowest we're saying it's 90% uh, that's done on that subconscious level. And so the conscious brain is what we like to think is doing most of what we're doing at any given time. I use a say like 99% being done in the subconscious space. What you're aware of is maybe 1%, even if it's 10, it's not enough that you should be focusing all your communication to that logical conscious area. And the brand's businesses, people that understand the rules that the subconscious is making to make decisions that most consumers aren't aware is driving their behavior, then you can make the path much easier when it's time to have a conversation with the conscious part of the brain. Yeah. You know, for, for, for those listening who are very new to this, let's use your background in Alaska as an example. So for people who know what an Alaskan looks like, I don't know if that's even the right term, but they would go Alaska plus people looks like this, right? That would be in their sort of system one. Um, and then you come along and they go, uh, uh, I got to go to system two to figure out why you're so pale, right? And so what's interesting... <laughs> Yep. Yeah. That's uh, I always used to do. So in 
school, you know, when you are at the beginning, like elementary, that sort of, you know, then they have, uh, you know, getting to know each other at the first day and they do two truths and a lie. And mm-hmm. I would always mm-hmm. use that, like, I, you know, from Alaska or whatever. And everybody would say, I don't see any Eskimos in here. Like there's no Eskimos <laughs> here that, uh, so that was my easy two truths and a lie because I don't look like an Eskimo, <laughs> which yeah, you, yeah. Know, <laughs> you brought up the DEI piece already. We won't go there, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's a largely what Africa is facing. A friend of mine is running the sort of South Africa, I mean, the African brand. I mean, he's worked across the continent looking at how to rebrand Africa and, you know, the, the images that Hollywood and CNN and National Geographic have just kind of buried in people's brains and their deeper subconscious. It's very scary to think about the, and this is why I do get excited about behavioral economics and why I think your work specifically because you make it so super simple um you know there's so much room for you across this wonderful continent you know yeah. when you were choosing the concepts and the effects and the insights how did you choose which ones to share i mean from priming anchoring relativity was it because a lot of them have just kind of been put under the microscope you know because of the replication crisis and so forth how did you decide which ones that you wanted to back for your body of work? Yeah. So, you know, as you know, there's well over a hundred concepts um, that could have gone into this. And I went yes. with 16 main concepts to talk about within the book in this like so my book is in four parts and part one is just, you know, about the brain, how it works. Part two is yep. here are some concepts. Part three, here's how you can start to combine those and kind of a recipe to follow in what I call behavioral baking. And then in part four, we have this don't get stuck and the other biases mm. and things where, uh, you know, you heard this amazing thing on a podcast. You're so excited to go start it on Monday and then Monday comes and you get buried in all the regular stuff and then you never do it this like Mm. eight page chapter or part Mm. of the book is just to help with that. So that has some biases and things in there too. But the main 16 that I picked for this book are based on when I work with clients, what we get to most often, as well as when I have interviewed people for my own podcast. And when I was gathering stories for the book, the concepts that were most relevant, uh, that came up most often, as well as those that were easiest to start with. So this book is very much an introduction. There are way more like nitty gritty, nuanced concepts that could have been part of sure, that, sure, but sure. like, you know, hi, that's where I'm saying, like, get a part, have a part, a research partner you work with on stuff like that. When you were just going to try to test some of this yourself and go use it framing, like I talked about with exactly, the, exactly, uh, the yeah. billboard example for that financial institution, you can go test that immediately priming. Exactly. You can go test immediately anchoring understanding. I, one thing I think is so interesting. It didn't even occur to me to not have herding have a chapter dedicated in the book. And so many people have been surprised and said, wow, I can't believe that you dedicated a chapter to herding. That's so interesting. 
And like, how do we not talk about hurting? Like that's so much (laughs) about like, yeah, I could have just combined it in with social proof, but, you know, understanding that we're a hurting species and we're going to follow the group more often than not is so foundational to applying the concepts that, you know, I felt it needed its own space. So I do try, I read a lot of books. I talk to a lot of people, but I try not to be influenced by the way other people talk about things because so, you know, I don't listen to Freakonomics or many other podcasts. I'm the same. I'm the same. It's like, I don't want to get overwhelmed and then try to, you know, make that model, my model. It's like, you know, you hear motivational speakers who try to sound like um, somebody else and you just like, it just feels so, but you're very authentic. And I really appreciate that about you. Thank you. Yes. I, I try to be, um, I'm pretty much me. And, and, you know, at the beginning of time, really, when I started the podcast, as far as like a reason why I needed this, um, was because behavioral economics, if we think it's new and people don't know about it now, you know, three and a half years ago, when the podcast launched, really nobody in marketing or branding was talking about this very much. And so knowing that I was wanting to be doing consulting and including this information within it, how much I would have had to tell people in discovery call and consults and pitches and convincing them to know that this even matters and that they need it would have been so much extra. Whereas creating the podcast and then people can find it, they hear the way I talk about it and you either relate to it and say, yeah, that's great. And then you want me to consult for you and you know what you're going to get or you don't like it. And then you just stop listening and we don't waste each other's time. And that's, that's great. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you became quite motivational at the end with who am I? I just imagine you standing on stage. <laughs> <laughs> who are you not to be great and to use this? <laughs> uh, yeah, I got, I got a little preachy. <laughs> no, I felt you though. I was like, go Melina. People need to realize they also can use this stuff because like you said, because so many people and I feel like it's because people don't understand it. They use a lot of jargon and make it sound intimidating. And I really appreciated that um, at the, you know, how you kind of use that as the end, almost like this calling card, like you're not out here on your own. You can use it in your organization as well. And, and, and thank you for that. Thank you for being an ambassador for simplicity. Yeah. You know, within, I think it was Donna Karen who said, within simplicity lies expression. Lies the power to express. And I just want to, you know, as we sort of wrap up this conversation, because I want people to go get the book. You know, I'm one of those people. I'm not going to go through every ounce of the book. And then people go, well, I already read it basically because of this interview. I want people actually to get this, to download it. And I'm actually thinking about hosting a conversation around it. That's how much I appreciate the simplicity and application of it. And I want to just say, like, gender is a big part of my life. I work for women's magazine for a decade. I did a show on CNBC interviewing women leaders about how they make decisions. What are some of the concepts that you think we can use to really help this gender equality moment? I wanted to, you know, I've had men on the show, but I want to hear from you as a woman, uh, your thoughts on this. I appreciate that. And actually that, um, you know, motivational, soapbox or whatever (laughs) at the end, I think is rooted a lot in, I do have 
a, a large network of female entrepreneurs and other people in, in business that are like women business owners. And so often get hung up that it is hard to have that, um, you know, when you're ambitious, what you get labeled as, you know, Sheryl Sandberg talks about a lot of that. When I, I listened to the audiobook of lean in, I was like, yeah, right. Like yeah. That <laughs> sort of, that's so me. I dealt with this. Right. Um, yeah. and so knowing that, uh, women in particular tend to get really, um, hung up in what people are going to think or say, or wanting to have everything perfect before you put it out there. And, have lack of confidence often when talking about pricing and the value of what they're providing and selling. And so I do, I've made sure that within my business. So I, I love doing corporate consulting and that's a big part of direct time with me. Um, but making sure I have courses and books and things that are available and affordable for small business owners and, and very much female small business owners, because I don't want them to fall behind as uh, big corporations are able to hire, uh, behavioral scientists. I I don't want them to, to be lost that I think that's, that's really important to me and making sure that there's value there. So I think, um, helping with that little nudge of saying, yes, you can. And someone giving you permission that it's okay. If that's what you need, I'm happy to be that for anybody because you can go do the thing, just go, go test it. And getting out of your own way is often the hardest thing to do. So being able to give that permission is, uh, I, I would be happy to be that for anyone of any gender and whatever is needed. I give you permission, go do it. I'm imagining a someone listening and uh, a woman or a man that has a small business and they're going, you know what? I'm going to start my own behavioral unit. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to buy this book. Yay. And, <laughs> and what would you tell them the second thing they should do is? <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> I mean, if how many things do we sign up for and then not yeah, that's go that's, do that's so, funny. <laughs> so follow through with the intention of that. Um, so I also, because truly for me, the most important thing with the book, with the podcast, everything that I do, I want people to apply. I really am a teacher at heart. And so in addition to the book, I created a 111 page workbook, a PDF that's available for anybody to go get for free through my website. And I have a group called the Be Thoughtful Revolution where people can come and ask questions and be connected. I do live Q and A's as well as just, you know, chatting with the group from around the world. So getting that workbook, starting to apply, just start testing some things. Test, um, test, test, test. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. one of the chapters in the book. It's exactly. Test, test, test. test, test. test. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So just go try something and you learn from it and knowing that a, a failure isn't a failure. There's still something to be learned. If there were no results, when you expected them, just ask, I wonder why that is. And work on your, start formulating that next test and tests can be simple. It's like the color of a button, the subject line of an email word choice in your next conversation. It doesn't have to be some big giant formal mess. Those are not the best tests. Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful way to put it because I do think that 
people think they need to have an office, they need to have a space, they need to have a process when actually, I think what I hear you saying is that they need to have a lens. Part of their lens need to be designed that, that I need to look at every problem, every opportunity with a little bit of, you know, behavioral science. You know, I really, you know, my last thing I want to ask you is, do you have a favorite effect or a concept in this whole behavioral that it's almost not really your go-to thing? Because I know you're very rigorous, intellectual and professional, and you're going to look at every case differently. But do you have a favorite? Like, I'll, I'll just tell you mine. I find that understanding the tribal instincts, you know, and herding and so forth, and scarcity, these are very, very strong effects um, mm-hmm. in this part of the world. But what, what are some of your favorites? Yeah, I have already talked about framing. There's a reason that it's the first concept that comes into the book in that I think it is the most foundational of all of these sort of foundations. So framing and the way you say something, I think is really very uh, a critical piece. Uh, one of my other favorites and that I've sort of become known for is anchoring. And, uh, Ah, and so anchoring and relativity to me are like peanut butter and jelly. So while you could have, I guess, one without the other, but really, you know, they, they go together very well. Uh, And since I do so much with pricing strategy, so uh, people talk about, you know, Melina's Snickers example, which I did not do this study, but I'm very (laughs) well associated with it now of two different end cap displays, one saying Snickers bars by them for your freezer, the other Snickers bars by 18 for your freezer of which, you know, most people agree 18 is a ridiculous amount of Snickers bars. Uh, But we logically think, you know, them is unlimited. I don't want to be tied to this arbitrary number. Someone's going to ask me where I came up with 18. I'm just going to go with this them route. Mm. And it probably doesn't make that big of a difference anyway. But of course, you know, uh, actually, there was a 38% increase in sales when you had the number 18 instead of the word them. And so it's not because 18 itself is magic, but it makes it to where the anchor that you say, like 18, way better than everybody else, I'll just get six, where you might have gotten one or two in the other space. So anchoring numbers this is also why when things are labeled as 10 for $10, we might buy more than $1 each. Just understanding the influence that numbers and other anchors have, I think is really important and something people have a hard time throwing them out into the world because they're worried about the consequences. But once you start testing with them, it's amazing what they can do. Yeah. And, you know, last fun thing I want to throw at you is if somebody is single, and they approach someone in a bookstore and that person is, you know, reading your book in a bookstore, mm-hmm. what would be a good way to approach them using behavioral psychology? <laughs> Ooh, how interesting. Not had this question before. Uh, first, I thought you were going to say something that had to do with relativity, which is like, if you're single and you're going out in the world, like, I don't need a uh, blonde out with me. I need a slightly less attractive red. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to help me look better. Um, so if someone's reading the, uh, the book, um, I know, I think I, you know, the be thoughtful piece, you know, like, uh, something in that, uh, vein or, you know, asking a good question today or 
something about being, or like, what's your favorite question maybe could be something. I think I talk about questions from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah you do. <laughs> Melina Palmer, thank you so much for joining us on the Brain and Brand Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening and make sure you go to Melina's website, www.brainybusiness.com, where you can listen to her podcast, book her for talks, and maybe even her course. Until next time.